Christian Howes, violinist, educator, and music business entrepreneur. I hope these interviews will inspire you to be creative in your life, in your art, in your business, in every way. So without further ado, let's get to it. My oh my, this is our second year. We did 10 full episodes in the first year, and we're kicking off year two. Most of you probably know that I work closely with Yamaha and have endorsed their silent electric violin for over 18 years. We're very happy to have them on board as a sponsor now. You can learn more about them at yamahastrings.com. Yamaha is an incredible company with incredible standards. I want to encourage you, if you get a chance, to try out one of their string instruments. Our original sponsor is still with us, Electric Violin Shop. And you can always go to electricviolinshop.com forward slash creative strings. And what a perfect mix of sponsors, because you can go to Electric Violin Shop and you can call them and ask them about all the Yamaha gear that they have, <laughs> in addition to all the other great gear that they have. I'm so grateful to them for sponsoring our second year. The first episode is a good one. I'm, I really enjoyed talking with Joe McHugh. He's a philosopher, a storyteller. He just fascinates me. I love to hear the guy talk. Please do share, subscribe, comment on the show notes page at christianhouse.com. Let me know what you think. Thank you so much, sir, for joining me today. I'm especially excited about this interview with you, and I know that you've done a lot and you continue to do a lot at the intersection of storytelling, philosophy, education, and old-time fiddle music. Would that be a fair description? Yeah, that's pretty accurate. And I like that idea of borderlands in the natural world. I've always been fascinated by the fact, you know, you have these different ecosystems like a pond and then you have a field and then you have the woods. Well, if I understand biology, what you have is you have the greatest number of species and the most uh, activity in those interfaces between the pond and the field and between the field and the woods. Out in the middle of the field or in the middle of the woods, you have a lot less diversity and a lot less activity. So there's something about borderlands that really fascinate me and I think all storytelling in one way or another, is dealing with borderlands. And the fiddle seems like an instrument to me, almost from the day I fell in love with it, as an instrument that sort of speaks of this borderland to another dimension, call it the spirit, call it the world of the unseen. And there's a great deal of lore that goes uh, with that. So that's why I think I'm attracted to all those things. Oh, man, that's awesome. <laughs> I love that you're using this Borderlands because the Creative Strings podcast for me is kind of about Borderlands for, you know, the people that I'm attracting to this podcast are not just fiddle players, hopefully. You know, they're people that could be interested in violin music and string music, but they could just be musicians. And they could be people that are interested in the arts of many kinds and business and just creativity in their lives and finding those intersections. And that's part of why I'm excited about having you on because I wanted to talk about some of those intersections intersections and your perspective on them. The first 
thing I wanted to start with is I'm intrigued about your insights as a storyteller and how those insights can be valuable to people like myself, musicians who are you know, performers, and how can we better connect with audiences by understanding storytelling? And I mean from a lot of different perspectives. You know, as a musician, playing the violin, just the notes that we make and the inflections that we use, that tells a story in a musical sense. But I also want to know, how do I connect with my audience on stage in between songs or in describing what I do to people or in my marketing? I mean, I wonder if we could start with that because I know that you have a lot of tips about how to tell stories. And I wonder what you think about that question. You know, I see the word storytelling in a lot broader context than I think most people do. Again, it's a word. So people have certain associations with it. And I've been a traditional oral storyteller. You know, you would think Mark Twain, Will Rogers kind of storytelling, because that's the style of storytelling that I fell in love with when I moved to West Virginia back in late 1960s and early 70s. And there were great storytellers. I mean, tall tale tellers and humorous tellers and great ghost stories. And I love that traditional folkloric kind of storytelling. But, you know, we live in a world that is completely governed by storytelling. When you really look at it seriously or think about, you know, what do you mean by telling a story? Whether you're talking about a courtroom attorney or you're talking about a politician, you're talking about a military commander, an advertiser, a religious person, a preacher, they're all storytelling. So what becomes interesting is, I think, to look at the medium that they're using to tell a story. And this is kind of Marshall McLuhan's idea is that the medium might be doing more to impact how people think and react than the content of the story itself. So it's a big subject. It's a subject I'm absolutely fascinated with. But let's go back to the oral aspect of storytelling, because that's kind of the basic of all storytelling. That's the root from which it all grows. And it's very close to the musical experience. I mean, it's all about learning stories by ear, listening to sound. Probably the best metaphor I use for it, if you think of storytelling like painting, this is, I think, really probably the most helpful thing I could share with anyone. The first two connections or parallels are pretty easy to get, but the third one usually throws people. So the first is, uh, what are your paints in storytelling? And that's your words. And, you know, you might want to pick more interesting words. We're losing so many great words in our vocabulary. You know, regional terms like galluses, meaning suspenders, you know, kind of Nebraska term. Telling stories and thinking about the words that are used can really make those stories much more effective and much more engaging. The second is, you know, what is the brush in storytelling? Well, that's your voice. That's your body. I mean, I'll even say as much as your gestures and the sound of your voice. That's your brush. But uh, what is the um, canvas in storytelling? And when I ask that question, most people will say the audience. And I'll say, well, no, a painter's got an audience. You know, what's the canvas itself? It's not your voice. What it is is silence. That's your canvas. And if you can come to a place where you understand the meaning of that, you can tell a story to anyone because the silence is what's doing most of the work. It's not you. A lot of uh, theater people think of silence in something called the dramatic pause. So imagine they're having this dialogue and then they want this particular affect to occur. They will consciously put a moment of silence before they say the next thing. And that adds tension and so forth. But I think it's a kind of a misunderstood way of understanding the role of silence in storytelling, and I would say in music. That's why I think these are very, very parallel. It's all silence. 
And everything you do, whether playing a note on an instrument or telling a story, is laid upon this fabric or this canvas of silence. And that silence is very powerful. And you can see it. You know, if people get nervous, if they have stage fright or whatever, they tend to talk more or try to fill the silence. They wouldn't lose their audience if they got quieter. It's kind of counterintuitive. This is beautiful. Can I ask you, you know, as a matter of practice and a daily level, just for me in my communications with people and or as a musician maybe, but I'm actually really interested in how this would apply to just my day-to-day -day interactions with people. How can I practice measuring my use of silence and better distributing or <laughs> better filling silences or, or not filling silences. Do you have a trick or a practice method for that? Yeah, of course, you're always paying attention to the environment where you are. We don't do that much anymore. We tend to pay a lot of attention to visual environments. You go into restaurants and, you know, they're laid out pretty well. The color schemes are good and things look nice. And then they'll have just some crappy music playing. I mean, always. <laughs> I mean, it's like the audio... It's almost as if we're at war with the audio side of things. And I'm trying to understand what that is. <laughs> sound so, pollution? Is that called sound pollution? <laughs> it is. And it's a kind of a deep neurosis, I think. Where is the noisiest place in our culture is a place where you might go to uh, involve yourself in courtship today, right? You're a young person. You go to some sports bar to meet a gal or a guy. And the sound levels are impossible f in terms of any meaningful storytelling. It's not going to happen there. And I think there's a reason for that. I think that people are very, very intimidated by the very idea of telling stories. And that brings me back. I heard something that I thought was fascinating. It was a study that was done at Harvard. And this is understanding storytelling almost as a function of leadership. And we can talk about the performer being a leader. You know, it's a leader of a kind of a ritual. You're on stage. Everybody's there for you. And in a way, it's a leadership function. What this uh, research had shown was that when the CEO of this company had an initiative, something he or she wanted the employees to really buy into and support. If he told them, you know, I want you to do this, he got roughly like 20% of buy-in. That was all he got. You know, when he said, I want you to do this, this is what I want, I'm the boss, please do this. If he explained all the rational reasons for it, he could get the bump the number up to about 28%. And that was it. But when he told the story of how he decided that this initiative was going to be good for the company. And I mean, not just a rationale, but said, I was driving down the road, you know, and I saw our competitors had this sign, and I thought, you know, if we did this, that simple act of telling your story took the compliance of the employees like up to high 60s, low 70 percentile. Wow, wow. A huge quantum jump. And that's a very, very important thing in storytelling. So, so what you're saying is that if you add a story to whatever the message you're delivering is that you're going to impact the buy-in, the conversion, the engagement of your audience, no matter what, whether that's marketing, whether that's doing a concert on stage. Am I right? I believe so. Now, what I'm saying is there's a counterforce. You know, this is not all happening in a vacuum. The counterforce is you have what is now an industrialized system of storytelling in place that is very sophisticated. And their absolute 
advantage and direction is to tell people that most people don't have a story worth telling. Okay, but a certain number, a surprisingly small number of people, you know, whether it's Cruz or, you know, whatever the actor is or, you know, or Spielberg, whatever, you know, these are the storytellers. And you see it, you know, in the checkout line in any grocery store, you know, every magazine is saying you should care about this story of this person who's breaking up with Jennifer or whatever the heck's going on. <laughs> and it erodes a fundamental sense of confidence. And we don't know what's happening. You know, we think we're doing it, you know, maybe we're using too many smartphones and we're tweeting too much and stuff that we're losing that skill. I mean, this is a skill. To have entertaining conversation is not a small thing. It was always essential in life, in any walk of life. To have that, it's like the oil, you know, it makes society, the social interactions just more entertaining, more cohesive and all those kinds of things. But now we have a force that's saying, just like growing a garden, you don't need to know this anymore. We'll sell this to you. You come to this store and we'll give you the storytelling. So when you're a performer or somebody who's trying to talk to somebody about your particular quartet or whatever, and you're trying to engage people, you have to kind of shift it away from the way we're getting patterned and trained to understand what storytelling and what we do. And it's a tough thing. It can be done, but it is difficult. And there's two things working against it. One is this intentionality of media saying, we're the ones going to tell your story. You don't need to be doing it. And the second is there's this huge thing that they've developed that just eats up all the time. So nobody has any time. <laughs> and if you get on the phone with somebody and you tell them a story, you know, you tell them a story about how the weather or, you know, gee, you know, I was in Ireland and I, my fiddle was in the car and somebody came along and stole something from my car, but they left my fiddle. I mean, these stories that just happen in life. That in fact, we are really interested in, but everyone just feels anxious. They just feel like, uh, well, you know, get to the point, you know, gee, I'd love to talk to you, but, you know, I got six more emails to get out today or people to talk to. So it is a very tough environment, but it's one worth fighting for. And I have developed wonderful relationships with people, usually because there was one person that I wound up having a conversation with, and I'm never in a hurry. If I talk to somebody and, you know, I'm talking about a conference or they're going to book us for something... And, you know, when I feel inspired to tell a story, I just go with it. I allow the time for it. And that's getting to be a rather political act. <laughs> well, no, that's beautiful. And that's part of the reason that you struck me and I got so interested about getting you on this podcast is from our phone conversation. I noticed that about you. I, I just could tell that you had something else to say, you know, about something that I wanted to learn about. So that works for you. But let me play devil's advocate to your claim here that things are different now and that it's hard to tell a story and that the only people that can tell a story are the, you know, as Noam Chomsky's manufacturer of consent, you know, these powerful owners of the media. I mean, what about social media? I mean, everybody can tell their story now on social media, and everybody is, but of course they're using images and videos and short sound bites and witty quips and even something like reality TV. I mean, it seems to focus on this idea of the everyman story or whatever. I mean, oh, what would you say about that? Well, I think in some ways it's true. I mean, the idea is that, I mean, if you think back to the Middle Ages, the Christian church, let's say in Europe, really pretty much controlled the whole mechanisms of storytelling in that society. You may have some traveling, you know, mummers or puppeteers or something, but the official storytelling was being told through cathedrals and churches and, you know, the lives of the saints and so forth. And they were always in alliance with the local warlord, which is very important to understand. The mythmakers and the warlords always have to strike a deal because one legitimizes the other and the other one gives the other one a monopoly. So that's kind of how the system works when it's 
in official form. And then you have this kind of unofficial storytelling that goes on in the society. And uh, we would call that almost the folk storytelling that occurs. Now, I'm making a distinction between, but in the way, it's still the same thing as your grandmother telling your story about her life or her grandparents. You know, this the long memory is what Utah Phillips calls it. As these large corporations really were able to kind of grab hold of all the storytelling, so everybody, you know, saw Bonanza on the same night, or, you know, everybody watched The Sopranos, and that's what you talk about, The Sopranos. So one, you know, this set of storytellers, and that's what you talk about. You're not talking about your grandmother's story anymore, and you're not talking about other things and your own stories and your own uniqueness. But then uh, social media came along, and it's almost like the uh, Reformation. It has the potential to decentralize the way we tell stories. However, inherently in the medium, again, getting back to the medium of the storytelling, the machinery itself, the way it's used, it seems to be operating in a way that's truncating and breaking everything up into almost pieces that are always out of context. Because if we use the word storytelling, we're not just talking about communicating information. You know, storytelling means more than that. It means creating, almost touching a mythical you know, shape to something, creating some meaning. And stories from Shakespeare, you know, we know have kind of three acts, you know, beginning, middle, and end, and there's a catharsis. And, and now what you're getting is stuff that's just flying at us, just these like ideas, you know, just these things that are almost like unconnected to any context. I see that happening a lot in social media. You know, some people would say we're evolving into a nation of chronic scatterbrains. And <laughs> I don't want to be the old grouchy guy, you know, who's saying, oh, well, what's happened to the old world that I knew? But again, it's that time thing, you know, to think about a story and care about it and, and to listen to a story and love it and try and understand what it's telling you. If storytelling is just entertainment or if it's just trying to sell you a product, but, you know, storytelling has always had one other task, and that is to pass on wisdom. I mean, that is why we do it. And I think in that regard is where we're not seeing it function very well. That's interesting. I'm sure I could debate with you more about that. And I'm really, I've seen this thread in some of your other writings talking about sort of the erosion of different things in culture and in society. And, and I think that's a powerful claim that we could check out. I want to go back to some a practical focus for, for myself, frankly, selfishly, and also for our listeners. You mentioned that people had to almost pivot if they wanted to tell a story, that because of the pressures that face us, you've got to be skilled in order to weave a story in. And how would you recommend that people do that? If I want to catch someone's attention on social media 
and bring them to my show because I want to sell my product, but because I believe that that is going to impart wisdom on people. <laughs> you know, how do I bring people in and maybe tell them a story and or get them to engage with the music that I'm trying to present? For me, that's all one and the same, you know, for us to be kind of empowered, as you said, to be able to tell our stories people as, as artists like you and me I mean we work for ourselves and we have to connect with people somehow we have to engage people with what we do to even have a chance for them to listen and for us to make a living <laughs> what do you think about that this might be where I give the worst advice from <laughs> from some people's opinion okay I'll, you know I do have my own life to point to and say well it's worked for me and I'm sort of at heart, and this is not something that I decided to be. It was when I was 18, somebody gave me this wonderful book called The Way of Cheng Zhu. And it was this Chinese philosopher, Taoist philosopher, but the translation was done by Thomas Merton, the Christian mystic. It's an absolutely wonderful little book. And they're very, very short little, almost poems about different ways of understanding the world. And it's all about non-doing. In fact, what often is our enemy, we don't realize it, is our intentionality. You know, we live in a culture, it's all about intentionality, everything. You're going to sell something, you're going to figure out how to do it, and you're going to put the pieces together. And at some point, at some real level, it's an exhausting exercise because what you have to do is you have to bring everything up to the conscious plane. You have to manage mailing lists, you have to know who you're calling, you have to do this, this. And really, the only people that are responding to you are often the people you're giving a lot of energy to. You know, you almost have to generate it by your enthusiasm and focus on them. And you may make some headway, but almost from a spiritual point of view, it's an exhausting exercise. And it's getting more exhausting as we go along. Now, again, I don't want to sound this old crank. I don't like the modern age, but <laughs> we are taking these things and moving them up to the conscious plane all the time. We're mining huge amounts of data. I mean, what's everybody worried about? All the data is being stolen. Well, somebody is stealing it, and then somebody's got to do something with it, and then they've got to come back and use it to somehow sell me something on Google, right? <laughs> it's kind of a collective madness, but to, from my point of view. Now, if you only believe, you know, you're the only thing going, then that's what you do because you're the only thing going, right? But I've been telling folk tales for so many years that I believe them now. <laughs> this is a vocational like hazard. I believe that there are other forces. I really do. And I'm not here to say it's, you know, Christian or Buddha or, you know, Christian, or any of that stuff. I don't know. I'm sort of more involved with the folklore of it. But my life has become a series of almost accidental things, chance meetings, uh, serendipity. And the more I trust that and say, I don't have to carry this load all myself. Okay. I have to do things, you know, if somebody asks me, you know, I should have something on an internet where they can look at it and they can understand what I'm about and why they would hire me or, or not. But I'm just keep dialing back that intentionality. And when you do, you get more surprised. And I think musicians particularly understand this, because if we put this into a real language of what the musical experience is or the artistic experience, it inherently carries this idea of some kind of revelation. You know, something happens when you're playing. The people I've been interviewing for my radio show about the violin, I keep coming to this. I mean, I'm not leading people. They just wind up taking me there at some point in the interview. And they talk about humility and they talk about getting out of the way of something that's coming through them in the music. And that's why they do it. If they can make a living at it, they're thrilled. And if they didn't make a living at it, they'd still probably do it because they don't know what else to do. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, that's what we have to remember, that human beings are engaged in this exercise called life. And I think there are other forces, you know, whether it's our ancestors. I sometimes will play a fiddle tune 
And I'll feel Melvin Wine, this old fiddler I knew from back in the 70s who I learned that tune from. He's long gone. And I could be playing at 3 o'clock in the morning on the meadow with a bunch of people. And I don't know. It sure seems like he's right there suddenly. And, uh, you know, people could just dismiss that as romantic, you know, notions. But to me, it makes the world so much more interesting. And then you feel like, okay, I just tell people what I've got going on. And I tell them my real story. I don't worry about how it sounds to them. I just try to find to be more authentic, will in the long run work. But well, that's, wow. that's what I think. That's amazing. I mean, that is one of the biggest touches I can think of. And it takes me back to, you know, obviously one of the first things people are going to say to that is, oh, you're just saying don't do anything. You know, you're saying just relax and let stuff happen, which flies in the face of a lot of conventional wisdom and, you know, a lot of the marketing blogs that I follow, although you did end up with something that is on par, which is this idea of being authentic and sharing who you really are. If you want to draw people in, be real, provide some substance to people, show people who you are, show them your human face. That's why using video or, you know, sharing portions of your life that are more human you know, are, are going to make people like, know, and trust you more and therefore want to buy what you're selling. But I love what you said. At the same time, you're going the opposite direction. You're saying take intentionality out of it and just slow down and let things happen. I think it's beautiful. I think you could really sell that, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. I could sell that. You know, so it's like that song, Paul Simon, you know, hey, that's worth some money. You know, that's a recurring line in one of his songs. You know, we hold up the 70s, you know, and Chris, you and I come from that period and we sort of came through that furnace. You know, we look back on that time with, you know, a real sense of loss and almost wistfulness. Well, what is it we're really looking back upon? It wasn't just our youth and our innocence. It was this idea that life had other dimensions to it than this machinery that now seems to be kind of pumping along at a pretty high rate and selling things. You know, you say the authentic. It's very hard to distinguish sometimes between the counterfeit and what is, in fact, genuine. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, I guess real arguments with people who love, you know, traditional and classical music. I thought it was significant, the fact that during Obama's first inauguration, which from a folkloric point of view, inaugurations are very, very important rituals. They have always been because it's where you leave your personal life behind and you truly become a public servant and king's coronations, it's a very ancient idea. And you have to give away your personal interest. And there's myths about that. Go back to King Minos and the Minotaur, which I could go into. But, but when Obama was inaugurated, they didn't get the oath of office right. You know, they stumbled and they had to redo it. Legally, they had to redo it. But probably the most significant thing was Yo-Yo Man and Itzhak Perlman, wonderful musicians, I have great respect for. But because it was cold, they never played their instruments. And it was all, it was all canned, you know. And, you know, they said, well, we have to do it because it's too cold and we can't bring our strads, you know, out here in this weather. But they could have just stepped back 200 yards and played inside the Capitol building in the dome. I mean, everything was being broadcast on huge television sets and all around the world. They could have really played the music. And it was an important moment. But it was kind of John Williams' composition, who we really associate with uh, film score, and it was just, you know, it was just a show. So they played, and they looked like they were really playing. I mean, Yo-Yo Man, you know, kind of went into that ecstatic state that he does. And the next day, you know, give him credit, he was on NPR, and he said, well, well by the way, we weren't playing at all. And I always thought that that kind of put the jinx on that whole administration. I really do. 
I think if it's struggling, because now you're talking about what's authentic. This is the leader, and that's well, not authentic. So we have a lot of stuff going on, a lot of people performing on stage now. And, you know, are you hearing what they're really doing or not doing? People just don't know what to believe anymore. So if you're really being authentic, you know, you've got to kind of cut through that and tell people. I mean, right now, if you hear a flaw in a performance, you know they're really playing. <laughs> It was not long until the bar of brisk and lively crew came bearing down and the captain cried, we'll see what we can do. Came bearing down with might and main in spite of land I want to take it back again to two things, really. One is, how can people better take advantage of silence? I mean, that's a difficult skill. And how can people possess the skill or develop the skill to tell stories? Well, it was great what you just said was silence. So let's think about silence, let's think about time, and let's think about stories. And there's a lot of folklore about this, you know, the fairies, people learning fiddle tunes from the fairies in Ireland, you know, under certain circumstances, and some who don't learn because they're arrogant. So, you know, we have a lot of hubris. And the first thing I'd say is you got to drop all that, you know, just let it go. It's not going to serve you at all. And then you begin to court these forces. You understand they're not something you can just make. You can't just sit down and say, okay, I'm going to become a storyteller. Make it. It's like you're courting this, you know, almost like taming a wild animal. You're asking it to come in and spend time with you and then allow it to begin to bring stories into your life. And then you're just recounting the stories. I'm not kidding. Things start to happen to you, you know, coincidences. And suddenly your conversation becomes much more interesting. Things that happen. Same thing with time. You know, you have to be friends with time can't be fighting it. We have Mother Earth and we have Father Time, right? Mythologically speaking. And we're like a bunch of teenagers. We're all pissed off at Dad. You know, he won't give us the <laughs> car keys. We don't allow for time and we don't trust that something else can come into the mix in the middle of live performance. And really, truly, I'm a radical in this. And I understand this. And you may never use this because I'm way out there. But I really understand that when I'm on stage telling a story, or performing. And if I'm talking to somebody the next day about having me come to their conference or their music camp or whatever, the work of getting them to understand why they would want me and why that fits is the same story I'm telling on stage. That doesn't mean I'm using a technique to influence. It's not this intentional thing. It's just, it's all the same work. I'm trying to get people to have some joy in their lives and just say, you know, God, this is a great trip, and we're only here for a short time, and, and there's a lot of frightening things on the horizon right now, but, you know, we're not alone in this. We can draw on these powers, and they're available to us, and something as simple as the violin is almost this shamanistic tool that allows this source of joy into our lives. And that's why I particularly like the folklore, because so many people that were fiddlers had very, very difficult lives. They came up through the Depression, where people dying of starvation in Kentucky— and yet they were still playing the fiddle and playing these joyful tunes. It's something really basic in the human psyche to do this. And so I guess I'm not the person to talk to about, you know, the next hot business book. <laughs> no, no, but you, but you are the person to talk to about the art of storytelling. Well, you know? And so what is the art of storytelling? I mean, what are some basic things people can do 
to tell stories or to practice telling their story. I mean, I, I, you gave us some great ideas. You said drop your hubris, and I took it to mean that you were saying kind of embrace the silence and give it time. You know, don't be in a rush, right? Right. And you said kind of that's like waiting or courting. And I'm not just waiting, but kind of courting, you know, right. the forces to bring the stories out of you. Okay, I get that. On a basic level, you know, because you talked about the boss earlier, that if he told the story about, you know, how he was motivated, something that happened to him, people often, they start stories from a low point and how they had this cathartic moment. Are there any formulae like that that you can offer? Oh, that's a good question. You know, some people do tell stories better than other people, just like some people really do play the violin better than other people. I've been playing for 30 years, and I have great enjoyment in what I play, and I can play fairly solid in what I do. But, you know, I can't come anywhere near Daryl Anger or people that I respect and who have just loads of skill, probably, you know, yourself. I, I just don't have that. So some people really do have more of a knack for telling stories. You know, in your family, you look around, and you almost can immediately identify the person who has that flair. Right. So in one way, you got to be pretty honest with yourself and say, well, maybe, you know, I'm not going to be this great storyteller. You know, I don't have that flair. However, I still love stories and stories are probably the best way for me to communicate who I am and what I care about. Well, at that point, you have to, I think, realize that, you know, a lot of times for one thing to happen, something else has to stop. It's the old idea of, you know, what was Michelangelo, you know, everything I carved away wasn't the elephant, you know, wasn't David or whatever. I don't know where that, but the idea is that, you know, all the carving you're doing is carving away what isn't what you're trying to get to. And uh, we're in an age right now where we have so many opportunities, you know, to do this and that and the other thing. And they seem like they're going to make us more creative. I would argue the fact that they're probably working against our real creativity because creativity often comes through limits. I know I'm rambling, but let me give you an example. I, I bought a farm years ago from this guy, and he was a school teacher. He was a great guy, and he had this 40-acre farm in western Pennsylvania. And he was one of the funniest guys I ever met. He had these great stories about all the things that went wrong. The brakes went out on his tractor. He fell off the roof. I mean, <laughs> sometimes they were, but they were funny, and they were great stories. Well, he sold the farm because his wife really wanted to live in town. She wanted a nice house and, you know, didn't want the farm life. And so he agreed. He went along with it. And he had to finish a roof on my property. It was part of the deal. So he was coming back. We were working on this roof together to get it done. And it was only a couple months later. And he looked at me and very sadly said, you know, Joe, he said, when I used to go up to Pittsburgh with all the other teachers, they all wanted to hear my stories. And he says, now I've moved to town. I don't have any stories to tell. <laughs> I don't have any stories. There's nothing happening. Dream of you. I dream of sleep, I dream of being warm, and pray the sea will leave me be, to see another dawn. You almost have to make your life more interesting, and I would say re-engage with the uh, analog world. There's less and less people in it. So <laughs> it's where stories are. And you get these little anecdotes. You know, the point is, it doesn't have to make sense to what you're going to talk to the guy about. It's creating the context, the human context. We were in West Virginia at a festival, and we stayed up really late. This is Clifftop Music Festival. And it was about 3 o'clock in the morning. We're driving back through the most remote area of West Virginia in a rental car. And we're real tired. And suddenly we hear this thump, 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 and it's really loud. It sounds like the whole tire's coming apart. 
And we don't have flashlights. It's a rental car. We didn't even know how to get the trunk open. I mean, we're in the middle of nowhere. I get out. I look around. I don't have, I can't even see what's going on. But I got back in the car and drove and just hoped that I could get someplace. There was no place to get to for about 15 miles. And after another about five miles, this thumping, which was quite loud, just stopped. And suddenly the car is running great. Tires are staying on. <laughs> so you get back to the motel and my wife and I get out and there's lights there in the motel. We walk around and we see this thing coming out of the hubcap and it looks like a steel cable or something. And I go over and I look at it. I'm like, what is this thing? And then I realize it's kind of wet on the end. And Chris, it was a snake. <laughs> oh my gosh. It was a snake that had somehow gotten in the in the uh, hubcap, and that was the, the sound we were hearing. Well, I've had more fun telling that story. Can you imagine that? You know, what a great story to tell, even on stage, you know? <laughs> Wild and wet, wonderful West Virginia, the time we performed there. See, it's always about your story and your traveling. You know, musicians, just, they're wonderful opportunities, and I think people want to hear those stories. So if I was a musician, I would take some time telling stories to the audience before you play your piece. You know, you have to be Victor Borga, who just gets up there and hardly plays and just does jokes. But you get up there and you tell things that have happened that are unusual, that you see along the way. And what happens is you begin to notice things because you're looking for stories and you're open to it. And suddenly, you know, the world of stories starts to give you these little things that happen. I love that. I think that's really the way it is. I don't think you can consciously, you know, the oldest idea is, you know, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. And if you lose it, you'll save it. Right. So that's in the Christian canon, but it's in other teachings as well. It's probably the most profound idea in philosophy. The idea is if you use your imagination to imagine what you think will make you happy and spend all your time trying to get that thing that you have imagined will make you happy, you in fact don't get it and you don't even get your life. Is when you give that up in this other kind of way, then suddenly what you really need comes flowing to you. And you just have to be more and more relaxed about it. And the more you're there, the more you feel like you're just out of step with everybody. And they're looking at you like, you know, you can't do that. Do that. And yet I'm 65, you know, so maybe I'm, I'm lucky. The guy who wrote the Martian Chronicles, Ray Bradbury, he said, you jump off a cliff and you build your wings on the way down. <laughs> mm. It's mm. really true. So that's my story. And by God, I'm sticking to it. Well, that was several stories. And I thank you for those stories. And I want to tell you that I think you are a great salesman. And I just want to see if I can try to break it down. And you tell me if I'm wrong. But just to paraphrase you, I mean, saying no to the thousands of stimuli around us, maybe. And maybe, again, going back to the idea of embracing the silence. And I think there's something there that translates into creativity, too. Because I think when we're afraid of the stillness, when we're afraid of the stillness inside of ourselves and we're afraid of being alone and facing what is it that I have to say, I think that we avoid going into that place and then we don't allow anything to come out. You know, I've experienced that. I mean, some people call it writer's block, but it's not even writer's block. It's just refusing to even sit down and try to write, right? I mean, and I think a lot of us suffer from that because there is a lot of stimulus. There's TV, there's somebody's going out, there's something on Facebook, you know, there's always something else to do. I love what you said. I think it's awesome. And it's powerful to hear you deliver all of this through your stories. It does bring it home. It brings it home to me and it's persuasive to me and it's engaging to me in a different way than if someone didn't deliver it the way you do. You know, so I love that.
I want to see if I can pivot a little bit because there's some other things that you had mentioned that I've seen that I want to get into. I'm sure you'll connect them somehow if that's okay. I want to take head on and I want to be a little bit devil's advocate about why the violin is special. I mean, you said that the violin is this kind of connector to spirit, you know, for people. And so my question is, is that because of its role as a subject in folklore or does it have something to do with just the sound of the violin or the shape of it? Because I'm suspicious of the idea that the violin would be any different than any other sonic tool, any other instrument. But I could see if it was a part of stories or, or history, you know, that it would have some archetypal place in our collective consciousness. I mean, what would you say about all that? Well, you just made me think of a story I would have never thought to tell. But friend, <laughs> yeah. Go ahead, please. Okay. A friend of mine was an assistant principal of this tiny little high school in West Virginia. I mean, really a tiny high school, you know, I think like 125 kids. And it was way down in the coal mining area of Southern West Virginia. And so every kid that had any weight at all was on the football team. You know, football's a big deal. And so they would have these football games. And when they were home games, they had this field and, you know, something of a stadium. You know, these didn't have a lot of money. But he was in charge of the parking. So he would get these rather small kids, right, little kids, you know, high school age. And he would send them out there and say, you know, you're going to park this area and you park this area. Well, these guys had come along, these coal miners and their families and these big four-wheel drive, you know, trucks, big tires. And they see the stadiums over there and some little kids saying, you know, oh, park over here. And they're like, no, I'm going to park there. That's where the stadium is. They just drive right by them. And then, of course, at the end of the game, it was a nightmare trying to get everybody out of the fields. And he just didn't know how to solve the problem. And then one day, this kid on his own shows up with one of those big policeman flashlights, you know, the big black one. And it's middle of the day. He doesn't have it on. It's middle of the day, you know. But he's standing in his section with that thing. And every time a truck comes in, he, he motions with the flashlight. And every truck turns and goes right down and parks right where he tells them. <laughs> and this friend of mine, Don Page, he said, I, God, I, I understood it. It was that was the badge of authority. It was the scepter. It is something fundamental in the psyche of the human species from day one. And he gave all the rest of the kids these flashlights. Middle of the day, they never had him turned on. And he never had a problem with parking after that. He, like, solved his problem. And there's something about the fiddle and the fiddle bow that really does speak to the magic wand. It's a continuous sound. You know, it's not a plucked sound. And it's not this, you're blowing the sound you're pulling the sound out with this long bow. You're moving that bow, and there's something going on visually as well as the sound, which, of course, is very close to the human voice. In fact, it's a little higher than the human voice, I would think. You know, I would think the viola or the cello is a little closer to the range of most human voices. But there's something ethereal in the sound of the violin, in the pitch, in the fact that uh, you can play completely in tune, okay? You can slide into being absolutely in tune, which you can on a fretted instrument. So that kind of rules them out in piano, where you have these confiscated scales. So you can truly move into these particularly uh, keys, modals and minor keys, and, and do some things there that just set up a resonance within these places in our psyche, our soul. I don't know what to call it. Those places that are not necessarily always out all in the sunlight, right? They can call on those deeper places. And at the same time, that magic wand is generating rhythm. So not only is it generating sound, it's generating rhythm. And that is a very seductive energy. Very, you know, old idea of the fiddler, you know, being sort of the seducer of women. You would get women dancing 
and men, you know, and think of the harvest dance. You know, a lot of courtship going on in those things. That's why the priests, you know, or the ministers weren't so crazy about what was going on with the fiddle. So the fiddle's always had this association, unlike any other instrument. Now, is it warranted? Is it true? There's something about it. It's also so small, so it travels. So it has that idea of the traveler, you know, the idea of Zeus coming to your door as a beggar, but he's got a fiddle under his arm, or he's a gypsy, or he's one of they call the travelers in Ireland. You know, they were often the people who would bring these violins into a community, and that was a moment of enchantment. Other instruments didn't do the same thing. So those are kind of the factors I think about it. And also you have all this other lore about Stradivari and Guneri and so forth, and you have this idea of the violin being found in the most unlooked-for places. That is such a common story. You know, it's found in an attic. It's found at a flea market. You know, somebody stumbles on it. Well, that's, you know, almost, you know, if you look at Christian mythology, it's the same idea. The thing that is most valuable is found in the place least expected. That's a very ancient folkloric idea. So the fiddle plays into all these deep mythic symbols about the condition that we're in in the world. That said, a friend of mine said one time, he said, you know, you can take a banjo, and no matter how bad you feel, you pick up a banjo and you plunk away on the banjo, you're going to feel better. He said, but don't pick up a fiddle when you're not feeling good. He said, you go off and kill yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Now that is interesting, yeah. What I took from that was that part of the reason it connects us to spirit in some way is because of its place in storytelling, in history. I'm hearing that loud and clear, and I buy into that. But also in the sense that there's something special about the fiddle itself outside of the context of storytelling. I think what I took from what you said is that it's because it can sing and it can be rhythmic. Right, and it has that continuous sound. So you think about what is shamanistic, okay? And, you know, that's a word that's, you know, used in a lot of different ways. But shamanism essentially is this portal or some way to go from this realm of experience to the sublime or this other unseen realm, okay? That's kind of what shamans do, whether it's for healing, you know, they're supposedly in touch with both realms. And the fiddle for a long time was the shamanistic instrument in the West, you know, whether it was Paganini or, you know, these fiddlers up in the mountains or, you know, Charlie Daniels selling your soul to the devil. This idea that it was an instrument that created this kind of experience. And that is not just because there was folklore about it. It really does create this experience. Well, but also you made a good point, which is that the violin is very difficult to develop a skill level on sort of a basic entry point. It takes years. You know, I'm always suspicious. I mean, obviously I'm a violin. So I love the violin, but I'm suspicious of the idea that, you know, one instrument has more, I don't know, not significance, but that it's really any different than others. But you make a good point. And there's a common thread that I see as a violin teacher where I meet adult beginners who, who kind of fall in love with the violin and, you know, maybe later in life, maybe after age six, because it's kind of, you know, for the violin, I mean, coming from my background as a classical violin player, you know, after age seven, it's kind of like, well, why even try, right? But, and I'm only being half facetious, you know, but then I meet people who in their 20s and their 30s and their 40s, they pick up the violin and it's always a conflict for me as a teacher because part of me wants to say, look, just pick up the guitar because, you know, you can do so much more in a smaller amount of time and you're going to be beating your head against the wall with the violin. On the other hand, a lot of educators would slap me in the face and say, no, it doesn't matter. People don't need to become experts at something to enjoy it.
that brings me to something you mentioned, which was that in your early 20s, you fell in love with the fiddle. So I assume you were an adult, a late bloomer, a late learner, whatever. Right. Do you want to talk about why the violin, as you say, saved your life? Or? Well, you know, I said that in an email to you, and it's really true. Most of my childhood was spent in Patterson, New Jersey. And if anyone knows that city, especially in the 60s and even the late 50s, it was in serious decline as an urban center. My father had died when I was very young, and my mother was a school teacher. So, you know, I didn't really have a father, and times were just pretty crazy there. So in the late 60s, I was fooling around with a lot of stuff and trying to, you know, figure out what I was going to do in the world. And I had friends of mine that were getting in trouble and getting addicted to heroin and things like that. I didn't go down that road, but I could have, I guess, at some point. I was certainly, you know, experimenting with psychedelics and smoking marijuana and you know, that's what was going on. But somehow I got it in my head from kind of coincidence or guidance, who knows, that, you know, buying a farm was like a cool idea. <laughs> you know, my family had like, where did this guy get this idea? But, you know, Canned Heat was saying, you know, going up the country and Neil Young, you know, some people were singing about this idea, the Goose Creek Symphony. I remember them. And so, you know, they were sort of holding up this almost mythic idea of living on a farm, you know, would solve a lot of problems. And it, it worked for me. So I traveled across the country in a school bus. I was selling leather goods out of the school bus. And eventually I fetched up in the hills of West Virginia after going to California and back. And I bought this 80-acre farm for $6,000 from my modest earnings from my leather business and a loan from the bank. And, and I had a house and three barns. I mean, it was remarkable. And you could get into it year-round. It was a dirt road, but it was passable. And suddenly I'm farming. I didn't know a first thing about farming. And the woman I lived with, it just went south pretty quickly. Also had the electricity turned off. I got in a fight with the power company. By God, I was going to take what they were telling me to do. <laughs> so for four years, I didn't have electricity. And that might have played into why the woman I was with didn't think it was a good idea. But at a certain point, things got really pretty funky. I mean, I, I was enjoying it. And I was learning so much how to work with workhorses and things like that. But I fell in love with the fiddle because it was a festival in this little town. And all these old men and women would come in. And these were really the old timers that almost are legends now in the folk world that were alive then and had learned their music directly from their families that went back to the Civil War and beyond, back to England and Scotland. I mean, didn't get it off the radio. This is early 1970s. And they were still coming to this festival. And people like the Seeger family and others would show up this little festival in this one county where I'd bought my farm. And they would just have a whale of a good time for this weekend playing fiddle music. There was a fiddle contest. There was a banjo contest, street dancing. There was one traffic light in the whole county. And it was that experience and the camaraderie. And you would go to parties. And, you know, we were young and you didn't know people, but it didn't matter because you could come in and play Soldier's Joy. You could play Cripple Creek. You were there. You were in the party. You were playing music. And everybody was having a great time. And eventually, I broke up with this woman in a very painful way, as it can be for young people. But the fiddle gave me a, like a focus. And uh, I was smoking a little marijuana back then. I stopped smoking marijuana because I couldn't remember the fiddle tunes, <laughs> you know. So, like, I put that aside. And I haven't ever gone back to any of that. And it just kind of helped me get my life sort of going in a direction that has been, in fact, a very, very satisfying life and full of adventures. And eventually I even went to Scotland for a year. And first I thought I was only there for six weeks. And I met this old fiddle teacher who was highly regarded. And he said if I would stay for a year, he would teach me for free how to play Scottish fiddling. And I suddenly said, well, I don't know how I can do this. And he said, well, I've got a house I'll let you have. You work on my farm. That'll be your rent. So for a year I lived in Scotland. So the fiddle has been a magical carpet 
or something for me. So maybe that's why I have this association with it as being something that has in it the ability to guide us in our lives. And I see this happening. There's a lot of young people playing music right now in the folk world. See, I think the classical world is a different animal in a lot of ways, and I don't know what it's like. I know there's a lot of pressure to play well, and you know, when you finally move into the area where you're auditioning and things, it's extremely stressful and uh, you know, very, very defined world. But you go to Clifftop, West Virginia, and there's hundreds, I mean, there's 500 people there that spend a whole week just playing fiddle tunes and banjo tunes and and have a little competition, but they're just hanging out with their friends and camping. And there's so many young people coming to that music, and they're all coming to it. Well, a lot of them had Suzuki, so it turns out they're marvelous players. But they're playing the folk music, and it's because of the social setting. Being up at midnight in a square dance with a really hot band like Foghorn, you know, just putting the rhythm down, <laughs> you know. And you know that you play jazz, and your own journey is a story that I'm very interested in. I'm doing all the talking here, and I think that... Uh, you know, how did the fiddle in your life, you know, how important was the violin as a kind of a, a central thing that you followed through difficulties or questions you had about your own coming of age? No, it's certainly, and this interview is about you, so I don't want to go too deep into my own life. The story I'll tell in answer to that question, Joe, is that <laughs> as a father of two children, when my daughter was born, I was thinking about whether or not I wanted her to play the violin, and I was conflicted about it. But ultimately, I decided that I wanted her to study the violin. And the reason was because I thought, you know, later on, it's possible that my daughter might say, why didn't you ever teach me the violin? You know, and I thought, it's the one thing that I know best. And if I don't pass it on, maybe I would regret that, you know. And that was the reason that I decided to start my daughter with Suzuki violin when she was three. And my son started when he was three. And, and my daughter now is 18. And my son now is five. But it was interesting because all along that path for my daughter for the last 15 years, there were many times, and I was aware that, you know, she might feel that she was in my shadow or that there's a lot of pressure when you're growing up. You know, you want to individuate and kind of push back on your parents. And I always wanted to be ready for that. If she said, I don't want to practice the violin, I don't want to study the violin, I, I had an answer ready, which was, that's fine, you don't have to play the violin, but you have to have a discipline. You have to do something that you focus on. And so I don't know that there's anything magical about the violin, you know, in and of itself. My son's also doing karate, and I think karate's a great discipline. My, my daughter's an artist, and she loves creative writing, and you're a storyteller, and there's so many things that I think can occupy that position in our lives that gives us a deep fulfillment and helps us focus to the point that you actually went straight, went sober, you know, in your early 20s. I mean, that's inspiring to me. And I don't think it has to be the violin, but it certainly has served as that for me and many other things, it's a sense of confidence, a sense of even survival through periods of my life. Thanks for asking. That's really powerful to hear your stories. I just want to put it that way. Your stories, I think, are very powerful. It's really inspiring me in a really meaningful way. I'm just loving this. I, mean, I can't wait to pour back over this.
to pivot again, this idea of what you do and what many, you know, one of my favorites is Bruce Molsky. You know, when I see somebody like Bruce perform, and I know that you do this too, you know, there's a song and then there's a story and then there's a song and there's a story. I'd like for you to talk about that process, you know, of telling a story and then playing a fiddle tune. And I wonder, because people have advised me before, I've read at least advice before, that you should only talk a little bit, (laughs) you know, when you perform. And people don't want to hear you talk all the time. Just play the music. Introduce the musicians and, you know, maybe talk once in the beginning and once in the end. But that's not what you do. You tell a story and then you play some music and then you tell another story and then you play some music. And I like that idea of connecting people to the music via the story and connecting people to the story via the music. It's this idea of telling a story and then playing the fiddle tune. And as I mentioned to you before, when we had talked earlier, my wife's a painter. She plays banjo too. So we play together, but she has these paintings, which are all inspired by the titles of fiddle tunes. And fiddle tunes have these wonderful evocative titles, Soap Suds Over the Fence, Billy in the Low Ground, Fire on the Mountain. And some of these names just grab her imagination and she'll paint an image that she imagines from that. And then what we do is I'll, we'll tell a story and then I'll, we'll play the tune. And then we, while we're playing the tune, we project that image on a screen that we bring with us. And that's interesting because we're bringing a visual element into something that's usually not there. And we're such a visual society. It's been very interesting to watch audiences and see how they react. But I will say that shifting from Storytelling to music is not an easy transition, and I'm still struggling to really be able to do that. And I don't know if there's a different part of our brain that makes music and the other part of our brain that uses language. And I think they are. I don't think they're exactly in the same place. And also the kind of music that we play is inherently trance music. And when you say about old-time music, people in that tradition will play a tune and it'll have so many measures in the A part and so many measures in the B part. You're talking about Bruce Molsky particularly. They don't play it, and then somebody comes in and takes a break on the banjo or the mandolin, which they do in bluegrass, and they would do in traditional jazz combos and so forth. They don't do that in old-time music. You just play the tune, everybody together, or whoever you're playing with. It could be just two people or three people, but what happens is you're trying to get into this trance state. There's something in the melody these old melodies combined with the rhythm, and if you get it just right, uh, you can feel it. It's a very real experience, and you suddenly feel you just you know step over this borderland again, and you're in this kind of vibe, and it's just addictive. <laughs> that's why hundreds of people go to Clifftop, and people don't know that's what's going on. Really, don't have a clue. You know, well, why would everybody do that? Why would you find that fun? And people go to those things, and you know, they just. They're brokenhearted when it ends. Probably the most famous waltz ever written in folk tradition by Jay Unger was written as a Shokin Farewell, which Ken Burns used as the theme music for the famous Civil War documentary he did. And it has this melancholy, beautiful feel to it, and it really worked for the Civil War. But why he wrote that was it was the end of a music camp at the Ashokan Music Center where he had done this string music camp. Because there's this sense that you've been in this magical world for a week. And now you're going back to the real world, you know, the jobs and everything else. But something else you're leaving. And that's what that music's about. And so to go from telling a story, even if it's a funny story and you've got a rhythm to it and, you know, you know how it fits into the tune, to go from that story and then play the tune, I've really been working on making that transition. Rather than get into the one tune and then play another tune, another tune, and you're a musician, so you probably have a pretty good sense. It's like you get in that part of your brain and then the music starts to kind of flow. 
So in some ways, you're asking, you know, how could you use, you know, language? Now, language, of course, is musical, depending on how you tell the story. I love the reaction of an audience to story, and it almost gives them permission to react to the entire experience. You know, because I'm not one of these storytellers. You know, a lot of people now think that word storytelling. There's a lot of theater storytellers now. And they're very scripted and they've got their story down. It's finally, you know, it's like acting. And they get up there and they tell the story and it's very theatrical. And that's not the kind of storytelling that I love. I love the storytelling, not too different than what we're doing here, but where you're, you know, you might be talking in sort of this ordinary language and suddenly before you know it, you slipped into a story. And you know you're in the story. The stories have like a character. You can feel them. There's an energy and then you're telling about this story and then you're, you kind of come out of it. It's almost like going into dream time. It has that feel to it. And I love to use, I find the older I get as a storyteller, and I've been doing this forever, I find myself using a lot of rhetorical questions. I started doing it with kids because I love telling stories to kids too. Because they really do either find the story funny and engaging or they don't. There's no idea of nostalgia. They're not saying, oh, that's the old kind of storytelling. <laughs> My grandfather <laughs> used to tell it that way. They could care right. less. And I love it because the old stories work. I'm talking about up to 12-year-old, 13-year-olds, you go into these schools and you would think with Harry Potter and these production things and the movies and all the whiz-bang and everything else, you'd think, oh my God, I'm going to get up there and tell a story about Jack goes up the hill and kills a giant and there's not much more going on than that. And they're with you every step of the way. And they're with you too because you're not trying to impress them with a lot of detail. So you're allowing them to dream the imagery of the story. You know, these are very action-based stories. You know, you go here and you do that. And I find myself doing these rhetorical questions. You know, you know what it's like at night when you see that light come under the door? You know? <laughs> and, and there's something about that that just people go, yeah, you know, yeah. And you're giving them permission to remember something. It's like we've forgotten. We're in a spell. You know, you always say storytelling is like spinning a spell. I think it's almost like deconstructing a spell that we're in and kind of reminding us of something. It is so delightful. So I thoroughly love it. But then people go, okay, now play the tune. <laughs> and of course, I made a big deal about the tune, so I want to play the tune well. And I like to comport myself well, as Lori Lewis says on the fiddle. And I have to kind of make this shift. And Paula has to do it with me simultaneously. So we have to hit the same rhythm, you know, kind of be at the same place, our heartbeats, and then try to get to that trance state. Because there's not a lot of virtuosity in what we do playing in tune and we're playing nice notes, but it's simple. It's not complicated music. So we're not impressing anybody with our skill, but hopefully with our affection for what we're doing is what's really coming through the melodies. And I don't think people in the audience are looking to find, you know, they're not sitting back judgmental and saying, well, this is not Mark O'Connor. This is something else. And that's why we call ourselves, I and mean, we have only started recently calling ourselves this. We were at a festival, and I was kind of going on with our tunes and talked to somebody later, and they said, God, you know, listening to you guys, I just felt like I was back in this other time. You know, I've always used the word old time for the music that we play, like Bruce Maltzky, old time music. And always just like, well, it's old time. It's old fashioned. And then I was talking to Daryl Anger about it one day, and I realized, I said, wait a minute, it's old time. It's a different kind of time than the time we're in now. And that's really what this is about. And so we, that's when we started calling ourselves, my wife and I, the time travelers, because we felt like, you know, we were using the fiddle and the banjo and this little story to really kind of transport people into another place. Not just, you know, knowledge of what happened, but 
you know, those moments where you just feel like you're not in this world right now, which is a great world, but, you know, you're back in this other time, which is ancient. I mean, you know, think of human history. What we're doing now is just a moment in time compared to, you know, the millions of years that we've been sitting around telling stories and banging on something to make music. So I'm probably getting off base here, but next time I'll interview you for my radio series and you can just go on to your heart's content. And what is the name of your radio series and where can people find out more about you? Well, uh, the radio series is called Rosin the Bow, which is R-O-S-I-N, the, T-H-E, bow, B-O-W, just like Rosin and the Bow, dot org. So we'll have these shows eventually, and not too long, will become available on the website where you can download them. And they're going to start going up on public radio stations around the country. They're hour-long shows, mostly just one interview with one person and then some of their music. And also, joemchugh.info. My name's M-C-H-U-G-H, so joemchugh.info. More what I do, public speaking and that kind of thing. And then Calling Crane, like the bird, callingcrane.com is uh, where my books are and my wife's paintings and things like that. Absolute pleasure, inspiration. Thank you so much. Oh, Chris, yeah, it's late there for you. It's been a pleasure. We'll talk to you again sometime. I hope you enjoyed the kickoff episode from season two of Creative Strings Podcast. And again, if you haven't already, please do leave some comments. Let me know what you think. And let me know if there's something you want me to cover. We couldn't do this without support. And I need to acknowledge and thank our sponsors, Electric Violin Shop, is a great resource for the string playing community. And you can call them. That's what I love about them. You just call them and they will answer every question. I get so many comments and questions about gear and sound and they are truly experts. So give them a call. The number is 866-900-8400. 866-900-8400. If you have any questions about amplified strings, call Electric Violin Shop. And sponsoring now during our second year, joining us, they're not new to me. I've worked with Yamaha for over 18 years. They're like family, really. I could actually go on and on about all the reasons why I believe in the the Yamaha brand, the integrity of their products, their guarantees of service and the warranties you get with their instruments, just the whole idea of the quality behind what they do, and especially watching them over the last 18 years, how they've worked and worked and worked to continually improve uh, their products. And I know that they're very, very serious players in our community, uh, the string world, that is. So thanks to our sponsors. Looking forward to having a great second full season of Creative Strings Podcast, and I'll see you next time. (laughs) 